I'm going to briefly just review from verse 9 to verse 11, just quickly as we continue our study. It says, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because the Lord and because of his holy words for the land is full of adulterers for because of a curse, the land mourns the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right for both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house, I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. In our study of the book of Jeremiah, and particularly this 23rd chapter, this is the 10th sermon that Jeremiah has offered. And Jeremiah condemns the sins of the false leaders, the politicians, the priests, the prophets. We looked at the ruthless shepherds in verses 1 through 2, the responsible leaders in verses 3 and 4, the righteous leader who we know is the Messiah, who will one day come and has in fact come and was crucified, died, and and rose from the dead. And now the Lord reminds Jeremiah that God himself rejects the false spiritual leaders in verses 9 through 40. And we also, the last time we were together, we looked at the fact that the Bible holds leaders to a high standard because leaders influence For good, and they influence for evil. And each and every one of us has some kind of role in which we are providing care or concern or support. And so the spiritual leaders of Judah and Jerusalem rejected the Lord and twisted God's word and denied God's word. And we sometimes find it difficult to understand the enormity of sin and the enormity of false teaching and why it is such a prevalent problem and how it destroys lives and how it devastates cultures and societies and how it ruins nations. And so, again, just very briefly, in verse 9, we're reminded not only of the broken heart of Jeremiah, but also the broken heart of God. And so he says in verse 9, my heart is broken within me because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man. In other words, remember, he has prophesied to the people and the prophecies have been rejected. And remember what else we learned that. The the image or the metaphor of drunkenness is a type and a picture of a person who's overcome because they were controlled by alcohol or they're controlled by drugs. But in this particular instance, Jeremiah is overcome because he's controlled by the spirit of God, because of the Lord, because of his holy words. The prophet, in effect, reveals the heart of God and the false teachers didn't delight the heart of God. And that's part of what you need to understand, because when you're looking at false teachers and false teaching, you may be tempted to think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a problem. But did it ever occur to you that false teachers and false teaching breaks the heart of God? And it doesn't bring delight to the heart of God. 
The heart in the Bible, remember, is a euphemism for the mind and the will and the emotion. And here it means the person on the inside. And so the profile of the false prophet included a detailed description of their life and their character and their future judgment. And by the way, it is okay for you to ask the question, what makes a false prophet a false prophet? It isn't simply that they break the heart of God or they distress the servant of God, like in verse 9. A false teacher has a false heart. They typically worship a false god and they preach a false gospel. Think about it for just a moment. They don't love the Lord. They don't walk with God. The false prophet misrepresents God and then ridicules God's true prophet. Earlier, Jeremiah had written in verse four, chapter 14, verse 13, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them. I didn't command them. I never spoke to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, the deceit of their heart. The false prophet makes predictions falsely in the name of God. And when those predictions don't come true, they not only are saying something that's not true, they falsify or at least attempt to falsify the nature and the character of God. And so this is why the Bible says that this is such an enormous thing. And by the way, the Bible speaks of enemies of the truth. False gospels, false doctrine, false miracles, false gods, false Christ, false spirits, false prophets, false apostles, false teachers. With that many different kinds of false things, it's supposed to bring you to the realization that there must be A true gospel and true teaching and true miracles and a true and living God and a true Christ and a true spirit. When we read the Bible, we encounter attacks against the truth in the form of heresies. Now, some people don't like that word because it sounds so judgmental. But there are heresies about revelation. People who distort, deny, or add to the Scripture, or take away from the Scripture. Those people are led to destruction, false claims of apostolic and prophetic authority, heresies about God. That means teaching uh, or promoting a false God, or idols, or distortions about the true God. Heresies about Christ. That means denying His unique Lordship, His genuine humanity, His true identity. Heresies about salvation, teaching legalism or license, denying the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, heresies about the truth, deliberate attempts to lead people away from true fellowship and true communion with God and Christ. Heresies about the future, false predictions about Jesus' return. The list could go on and on. And there's a reason why the Bible makes such a big deal out of it. On my radio program this last um, couple of days ago or yesterday, I had a man who had uh, converted, if you will, from Catholicism to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. He spent 32 years in the Mormon church and rose up through the ranks and, and finally became a bishop in his church. 
He had devoted not 10 years, not 20 years, but 30 years of his life. Mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, financial investment only to find that it it wasn't true. And I asked him, what was it that motivated you to leave a lie? And he said, it was a desire to know the truth, to really know the truth. And so as the Lord begins to outline this, he talks about the land filled with adulterers. Look at verse 10, for the land is full of adulterers. In other words, immorality was pervasive. Again, it's either a statement about actual adultery or spiritual adultery. The the whole point isn't just simply the, the profound immorality that was taking place in the nation. Remember what adultery does. It destroys intimacy. It destroys trust. It destroys respect. It destroys affection. This isn't just a criticism of the false prophets and the false teachers who are involved in false religious practices. It's the reality of what takes place when a relationship is destroyed. And that's the point that God is making. It isn't that he's just simply upset over the immorality. It's the consequences of that immorality. And at the end of verse 10, look what it says. For because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are all dried up. Their course of life is evil. Their might is not right. The false teacher supplants his or her false teaching with a wicked, selfish lifestyle. The pleasant places of the wilderness aren't just, it's not in the middle of nowhere. These are the places that would have normally been cultivated where they yield fruit, where they yield produce where normal fruitful circumstances are taking place so that life can continue. But because of rebellion and disobedience, life can't continue. And then in verse 11, for both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, my house, I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. The job of the prophet, remember we already talked about this, was to speak for for God. And what was the job of the priest? To serve as a caretaker of the ark of God. In this case, the ark becomes a type and a picture of Jesus. To serve and worship. To teach concerning legal matters. The job of the priest was to serve as an intercessor for the people of God. So imagine the prophets and the priests were to speak for God. Were to promote, if we were to put it in modern terms, pointing people to the reality that a sacrifice is available so that forgiveness and hope could be established. The priest's job was to teach the law, which included the ability to discern between right and wrong, good and evil, clean and unclean. But when you have people that don't want to talk about right and wrong, good and evil, clean and unclean, everyone is free to make up their own mind about what they can and they can't do. And you'll notice that they often will make up their mind. Well, this is right for me. This is good for me. This is what I need to be able to do. The word profane means evil. It means corrupt. It means unclean. And so when he says both priest and prophet are profane, it means that their job has been completely undermined. My house is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple's polluted, unclean because of the wickedness of Judea's leaders and Jerusalem's leaders. And so the term vision here 
And in Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 14, Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, is a reference to the divine revelation. So the, the vision that he's talking about is the false vision that they said that they're hearing from God when in fact they're not hearing from God. And so the false leaders and the false priests and the false politicians provide a false peace and a false prosperity in verse 17. Look what it says. They continually say to those who despise me, well, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you in verse 17. What? Remember what Jeremiah's message was? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. The, the, the sermons that Jeremiah has been giving, the, the sermons go something like this. You're in trouble. Sin is taking its toll. Repent, turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Don't you understand that your rebellion and your disobedience and your sin isn't? A good thing, it's a bad thing. And you're about to reap the consequences from it. But the false prophets were saying, you know what? There's no enemy that's going to come and destroy Judea and Jerusalem. And you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, no evil will come upon you. In other words, they were saying exactly the opposite of the message of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, a king is going to come from the north. We know it's the king of Babylon. He's going to kill most of you. He's going to take some of you into, into captivity. Here's the message of Jeremiah. Your life is about to change dramatically. You know, it's hard for us sometimes to comprehend, but some of you have experienced dramatic changes of life. You went from employed to unemployed. You went from married to un not married. You went from a happy family to a not so happy family. You went from freedom to incarceration. Or you went from incarceration back to freedom. Dramatic changes take place in your life. The false prophets despised the message of Jeremiah. The false prophets held out a false hope and a false prosperity and a false peace and a false security. Because that wasn't God's message. God's message was, there's a horrible, terrible thing that's about to happen. And I need you to wake up. And you know, in the New Testament, there's another message that's given. The message, of course, is that sin is a horror and that the wages of sin is death. But the message in the New Testament is, but God sent his son, Jesus, into this world so that we could experience hope and forgiveness and grace and mercy and reconciliation. But it's not a welcome message in the world in which we're living. Because the moment that you say sin is a problem and there are horrible consequences associated with sin, people will suggest to you that it really isn't a problem. 
And so he goes on that there's a false peace and a false prosperity. And then in verse 18 through 20, there's a failure to communicate all of God's word. That's what the false priest and the false prophet does. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord, it says in verse 18, and has preserved and heard his word? Or who has marked his word and heard it? So let's ask that question. Who has access to the counsel of the Lord? It's the person who hears God's word and understands God's word and obeys God's word. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? The person who has stood in the counsel of the Lord is the person who's willing to stop and pause and listen to what God has to say. Jeremiah provides one more reason not to listen to the teaching of the false prophets and the false priests. They haven't received God's word. And this becomes an important point for each and every one of you, because for the person who has a story, for the person who has an opinion, for the person who has a suggestion, for the person who has an antidote, for the person who has a principle, they seem to have everything except for a Bible. It's shocking to me and surprising to me how many churches you can go into and you never hear these words. Open up your Bible. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Turn in your Bible. Because it's the Bible that has a message from God. They don't have God's word. And so he says, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord has perceived and heard his word, who has marked his word and heard it. Clearly, the people who aren't listening to God, perceiving God are opening their Bible. They can't hear from God. And so he gives a judgment. Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth into fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. Jeremiah repeats the message of judgment using the metaphor of a violent whirlwind. In other words, he uses the metaphor that you and I are familiar with. There's a storm. There's a storm coming. There is a whirlwind coming, and it's going to blow in such a way that the circumstances are going to change fundamentally and radically. It says in verse 20, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he is executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you're going to understand it perfectly when he says the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he is executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. It was the hope of both the priests and the prophets that God would change his mind. There's not a real judgment that's going to come. There really isn't consequences for rebellion and sin and disobedience. Surely God will change his mind. Surely there's time to act differently, to think differently, to do things differently. But the Lord says, guess what? You cross a line in the latter days. You're going to understand it perfectly. We know that hindsight is always 2020. I want you to imagine the day before or two days before or the week before. Or the month before you lost your job. 
The week before, the day before, the month before you lost your marriage. The week before, the day before you lost whatever it was and you thought there's still time to change. There's still time for things to be different. There's still time for me to go in a different direction. But you found yourself thinking and acting out and all of a sudden it caught up with you. When he says in the latter days you're going to understand it perfectly, it's a reference to the times after the event of Jeremiah. But it's also, so there's, there's two ways of thinking about this latter days. There's going to come a time when Jeremiah's message is over with. The king of Babylon has come. He has captured the city and he's removed the captives. There's going to come a time when Daniel the prophet will read the scroll of Jeremiah as the children of Israel now find themselves stand in captivity in Babylon. There's going to come a time. In the first century, where the religious leaders will read the book of Jeremiah, there will come a time after the resurrection of Jesus when people will read the book of Jeremiah. There will come a time when the reformers will read the book of Jeremiah. There will come a time when you and I go through the book of Jeremiah and we start reading it and we understand that all of the prophecies that God said literally came to pass. That's what this means. Have you ever stopped to think all of that stuff in the Bible is true? All of the stuff in the Bible is true. And then you're going to understand it. And so the reader's vision is stretched. We don't always comprehend the discipline of God and the judgments of God. We don't always understand or comprehend the promises of God. But we should want to. We should say, Lord, I want to understand what your promise means for me. And then the false prophets and the false priests minister with a false authority. Look at verse 21. I haven't sent these prophets, yet they ran. I haven't spoken to them, yet they prophesied. In other words, the false prophets minister under a false authority. Their authority isn't from God, and it isn't from God's word. They were never sent by God. And sometimes you'll find them even today on the radio. You'll find them on Christian TV. They'll come to you right into your home, and they'll say, God sent me with a special word just for you. The Lord has sent me with a word just for you. And the word almost invariably includes some gimmick or scheme to get you to give them money for some scam or sham. But I haven't sent these prophets, yet they ran. I haven't spoken to them. Yet they prophesied. I know what some of you are thinking. No one in their right mind, no one in their right mind would ever say, God told me to tell you, unless they really meant it, right? But Jeremiah says, there are false prophets. There are false prophets who will say false things. They will go so far as to say, the Lord told me to tell you, and you know what you need to be able to say to them? Well, if the Lord is that interested in me knowing, then he should tell me as well. Beware. 
the, the false prophet ministers under a false authority. The true prophet of God must be sent by God with a word from God. By the way, at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, is Jeremiah sent by God with a true word from God? The answer is yes. The true prophet of God will confirm the character of God and the word of God. The true prophet of God. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because if you forget everything else in this message, this might be the most important thing that I have to say this evening. The true prophet of God will call on the people to recognize their sin and to repent of their sin. And to turn from their wickedness and turn to the Lord and receive the grace and the mercy and the love and the outstanding mercies of God. And you know what? For each and every person who's ever done that, they've turned from their sin and they've turned to Jesus and they've embraced Jesus and they've confessed their sin to Jesus and they've experienced forgiveness of sin from Jesus, a life has changed. The true prophet of God will call on the people to recognize their sin, turn from their sin, to identify the wicked heart and the wicked works, to turn to God with a renewed confidence in the revelation of God and a renewed confidence in the word of God. The true prophet of God will say, open up your Bible, read what it has to say, begin to understand it and memorize it. Trust it and accept it. In verse 22, look what it says. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned away from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. The Lord points out through Jeremiah the prophet that if these were true prophets and priests, if they were really from God, with a word from God, then they would repeat the message of Jeremiah. But they didn't repeat the message of Jeremiah. Do you want to know one of the ways that you can tell the true prophet from a false prophet? If the, pro- if the false prophet even repeats part of the message of the gospel, but not all of it, then that person should be held suspect. In other words, the true prophet of God will say what the Bible has to say about God about Jesus, about sin, about forgiveness, about reconciliation. But if they'd stood in my counsel, so the false prophet doesn't stand in God's counsel or remain under the circumstances where they're hearing and understanding the truths of God. That is they don't communicate God's true message. That's what it means. If they had stood in my counsel is the Lord's way of saying If they had understood and remained in the true message, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. If the false prophet preached a true message, people would repent of their sin and they would turn to God. And if there's a message that's different from that message then you should hold it with suspicion. And look what it says in verse 23. 
Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Here's what the Lord claims. God is close by. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was speaking to the Stoics and the Epicureans on the Adiapagus or Mars Hill, he said, hey, you know, God in times past winked or closed his eyes, but now he has in these last days given a message. And the message is that everyone everywhere should repent of their sin and and turn to God and believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And then Paul goes on and he says, you might be wondering why God placed you in the circumstance that he placed you in. But God didn't place you in the circumstance so that you wouldn't know God. God placed you in the circumstance that he placed you in so that you would know God. That he's not far off. He's close by. Here is the idea. The Lord God, the true and living God, is the source of truth. And he's the source of authority. The God of Israel, the God of the Bible, isn't some distant, unknown, uncaring, unconcerned deity to the people of the surrounding nations, the idol worshippers of Israel. They would implore Baal, the God of rain and the God of weather. The people all around in the different countries would call out to their God and they would offer sacrifices to their God. But he always seemed strange and distant apathetic, indifferent, and uncaring. And some of you have had that experience. You've said that. God, where are you? Are you distant, apathetic, indifferent, and uncaring? When you say those words, that means you've forgotten the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible isn't distant and uncaring and indifferent. The God of the Bible is there and he cares. He hears and he understands. Well, then why don't I sense his presence? Why doesn't he respond to my calls? Why doesn't he hear my cries? Oh, he does. God isn't far away from you. You're far away from him. You're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, how do I bring God near to me? The question is, how do I draw near to him? And the Bible gives you the formula. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. In brokenness and humility, get on your face and cry out to him. He's not far away. False teachers will appeal to a false authority. For the Jehovah's Witnesses... And the Gospel and Tract Society in Brooklyn, they'll say, you, in order for you to understand the truth about the Bible, you have to get the watchtower and tract literature. For the Mormon, it's the belief that their apostles and prophets speak for God now. You know what false teachers and false prophets will always tell you? That they're the authority. But you guess what? There is No authority under heaven whereby human beings must be saved apart from Jesus Christ. And look at verse 24. It says, can anyone hide himself in the secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Can anyone hide himself in secret places? The reality is, is there anywhere you can go? Is there a secret plot that you can purchase in Idaho or Montana that God isn't there and he doesn't see you? 
Is there some wormhole? Is there some alternate? Is there some other dimension? Is there some multiple universe that you can go to that you can escape from God? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? The Bible says that God is omnipresent. The Bible says that God knows everything. The Bible says that God sees everything. The Bible says that God not only knows everything and sees everything, but nothing is hidden from him. Nothing, nothing, nothing goes unnoticed by God. And I know what you're thinking. That prayer that you prayed, God, did you see that? And then you go, sorry. Of course you saw that. Of course you know. Of course you understand. In verse 25, look what it says. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. God, don't you see those guys on radio and TV? Don't you hear those crazy weirdos saying crazy things that aren't true? Yeah, I heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I dreamed. I, I had a dream. By the way, the Hebrew word arrangement is difficult in this passage. Where it says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. Lie is singular in the Hebrew. It seems to carry the idea of the quality of the word of the false prophet. It's as if Jeremiah is saying, it is a lie. He's not pointing out a specific lie, but the sum and the substance of the message is a lie. And what is the sum and the substance of the message? Remember, peace, safety, security. There's no problem. And so... In the ancient world, dreams were highly prized. As a matter of fact, the Egyptians had a whole little cottage industry of dreamers. The Babylonians and the Assyrians and Egyptians all saw dreams as a portal, a gateway, a way to enter into other dimensions so that you could hear from the gods and get supernatural revelation and supernatural information. And so when people wanted to pull the wool over other people's eyes, they would say, I had a dream. You know, I had a dream and a spirit being spoke to me. And people would, they would perk up. It's just like what, what, what's been happening over the last several weeks and months. Over the last several weeks and months, uh, the two or three of the best sellers have been about books of I went to heaven or I went to hell. Someone was having a conversation with me earlier today where where on the New York Times bestselling list, you have the story of a so-called three year old who goes to heaven. And it makes the New York Times bestselling list. But if you say to the people, why aren't you willing to believe what the Bible has to say about heaven? No, you don't understand. This kid died and he came back to life. And then he, he's giving he, he, he had visions of, of heaven. There's something perverse and there's something wicked. There's something wrong inside of us. We're willing to believe almost anyone or anything other than the Bible. 
You know, when you point out to people, you know, the Bible says there's a heaven. No, no, you don't understand. No, I understand exactly. Well, you don't understand this person died and went to hell and came back. No, the, the Bible actually talks about that, about a, about, about a real hell. No, but this person actually went there. He's, he has an eyewitness account. For whatever reason, people are reluctant to believe God's word. The contrast is between the true prophet and the false prophet. Now, remember, a dream is temporary, fleeting like chaff in the wind. And so... He says in verse 26, how long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. They're willing to say whatever they want to say. Verse 27, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Isn't it funny how false prophets tend to dismiss the name of Jesus? The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Remember over and over again in the New Testament, the repeated testimony, there is no other name given under heaven whereby human beings must be saved. They tell their dreams as their fathers forgot my name. Well, you know, Jehovah is pretty impressive. But, you know, Baal is in charge of the weather. That's what the ancients believed. They believed, oh, you know, Jehovah is good for really big things like liberation from slavery. But we need rain and we need it today. And people have that same mentality. It's, you know, God and Christianity is nice for these people, but I have a real problem. The false prophets and the, the priests fail to teach God's word. Look at verse 28. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Do you understand the contrast? He's not saying you can't have dreams or that God won't necessarily speak in a dream. As a matter of fact, he says, hey, the prophet who has a dream, let him tell the dream. And what's the point? If the dream is true, then it should be consistent with God's character and God's word. But he says, but he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Do you have God's word? Remember what it says in John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you have the Word of God? Do you have the Word of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Do you have the Word of God in the form of a Bible? Do you open up your Bible and do you read your Bible and do you look at your Bible as the sustenance? Because that's the contrast between the chaff and the wheat. Because the chaff is that outer hull. The dream is temporary, fleeting, like chaff. God's word has the force of a hammer and a fire. What is the chaff to the wheat? The chaff is the outer hull. It's the, it's, it's the non-nourishing portion. What is, 
the wheat, it's the grain, it's the nutrient, it's what you use in order to actually experience sustenance. Here's what the Lord says. Fear, dreams, superstition. That's like eating straw. Horses eat straw and donkeys eat straw. But human beings are supposed to eat things that are nutritional, that have nutritional value. And so he says, what is the chaff to the wheat? It's the difference between being fed and not being fed. And then in verse 29, look what it says. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? What's the difference between the false prophet and the false prophecies to the word of God? Which is like a fire and like a hammer. Was it false prophets and false prophecies that lit your heart on fire? Was it the false prophets and the false prophecies that pounded your heart and convicted you of sin and caused you to turn to have a right relationship with God and Christ. What was it that broke your heart wide open? What was it that lit your imagination and future on fire? You see, the word of God is significant and impressive and complete and sufficient. It is sufficient to justify the faith of the weakest Christian. It gathers all of the most earnest search and then creates a mechanism so that you can understand right from wrong and good from evil. It teaches us in regard to the utterances of divine wisdom and love. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is a map to guide us. It is food to feed us. It's the wisdom of God. It's light from heaven. It's the necessary equipment. It is the mechanism where you receive the commands of God and the promises of God. It is the method whereby God becomes alive to us. And the promises of God become alive to us. I was reading A.W. Tozier. He said, quote, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he is Deep in his own heart, what he conceives God to be like, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. How do you know what God's really like? The only accurate, truthful revelation is the Bible. Wayne Grudem provides this definition for the sufficiency of Scripture. He says, quote, 
The sufficiency of Scripture means the Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, for obeying Him perfectly, unquote. And that's, that's good. The Westminster Confession of Faith reads this way. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from the Scripture under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and of Christianity prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed so what does this mean the Lord tells us that the Bible has everything that we need in order to live to think to grow we can't add anything to the Bible we shouldn't subtract anything from the Bible and we should never regard any information as equally authoritative Unless it comes from the Bible. What does this not mean? It doesn't mean that the Bible is the only thing that you use to make a good choice. It, isn't, it doesn't mean that the Bible... Um, it, what it does mean is that the Bible contains all the divine words that we need. There are other things that we need to live wisely, such as the illumination of the Spirit, correct use of the tools that God has given us. It does not teach that the Bible is the only source of information that we use in decision making, but it does mean it's the only reliable source. So, enough about that. And so... He says, behold, I'm against the prophet, says the Lord in verse 31. Who use their tongues and say, he says, here's the point over and over again. The Lord repeats the point. Verse 30, I'm against the prophets. Verse 31, I'm against the prophets. Are you left with the impression that the Lord is against the He's against them. He's not for them. Well, it's no harm, no foul. No. Big harm. Terrible foul. The Lord stands in opposition because the false prophets speak a false message. They preach the thoughts of man rather than the revelation of God. God stands against the false prophet because they're teaching their own ideas. But here's what they claim. No, I'm, I'm speaking for God. Jeremiah gives three good reasons why God stands in utter opposition to the false teachers and false prophets. Number one, they told lies, and those lies led people astray. Number two, they're not sent or appointed or anointed by God. And, and number three, the false prophet provides no profit or benefit to the people. So here's his response. Well, what harm would it be to listen to these people? Here's the harm. It puts people's souls in danger. 
And so verse 32, behold, I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them. I did not command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all. They told lies, led people astray. They're not sent or appointed by God. They're not helpful. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, we find the story of Aaron and Miriam. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam, are they the brother and the sister of Moses? Yeah. So they have access to Moses. Yeah. Were they used by God? Yes. So here they are in close proximity to Moses, used by God, yet they both defied Moses. In verse 6, it says, then he, that's the Lord, said, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Here's, here's the Lord's question to Miriam and Aaron. You know me. You know how I work. You know how I talk. You know how I reveal myself. You know how I talk to your brother. Face to face. What's the application for you? Jesus is the perfect representation of God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke in different times in different ways in the past, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son, Jesus. So you are prepared to contradict Jesus, defy Jesus, disobey Jesus, deny Jesus, pretend that what Jesus said he didn't really mean. The false prophets and the priests mocked and ridiculed God's true oracle. In verse 33, it says, so when these people or the people or the priests ask you, saying, well, what's the oracle of the Lord? You'll say to them, what oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord. Here's the translation. So when these people or the prophet or the priests ask you, saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? Remember, they're talking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what's the word from God today? Here, here's what God has to say. I'm going to forsake you, says the Lord. In this case, the oracle of the Lord is the word of the Lord or the message of the Lord. So the Lord is giving Jeremiah insight on how you address a mocker or a skeptic. How do you address the mocker or the skeptic? When you say, you know, the Bible says, oh, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Can't you say anything other than the Bible says? Why, what is it about my opinion that you value more than the opinion of God? How is it that the Bible is the last thing that you want to hear from? Over and over again on my radio program, people will call me about science. They'll talk about evolution. They'll talk about creation and evolution. And people will talk about... Um, Evidences for God. They'll talk about ontology and cosmology and philology and ontogeny. And they'll say, 
Prove to me that there's a God. But don't use the Bible. And I almost immediately say, you know, I don't accept your presupposition that the Bible is false. I accept the proposition that the Bible is true. See, what you're trying to do is you're trying to ask me to reason from a fallen, depraved position to a position of revelation. For some reason that I don't quite understand, there is something so perverse and so broken and so wicked inside the heart of human beings that the last thing that they want to hear is, God has said this. God has revealed himself. And the Bible reminds us that God has revealed himself in nature. Look around you. There's a creation. Doesn't that scream creator? Well, yes. <laughs> Look inside of your conscience. That there's such a thing as right and wrong and good and evil. Doesn't that scream that there's a lawgiver? The Lord gives Jeremiah insight. And he says, guess what? The true prophet of God was to declare that God will forsake the mocker. What's the word you have from God? Here's the word I have from God. If you continue to deny the Bible, if you continue to deny Jesus, if you continue to deny that you're a sinner in need of a savior, guess what? God will forsake you. In verse 35, it says, thus, everyone, you shall say to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, what is the Lord answered? And what is the Lord spoken? Thus, every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother. And the first, how do you answer a skeptic and the, and the mocker in verse 35? He's saying, what if they ask you, how do we seek the Lord? How do we discover God? How do we get God's help? This is what you say to your neighbor. This is what you say to your brother. What has the Lord answered? What has the Lord spoken? That's your answer, by the way. We depend on God's word. We depend on God's revelation. Do you want to know what God has to say? Then open up your Bible. And open up your heart. When people say that they need help from the Lord... I need to hear from God. Open up your Bible. No, you don't understand. I need to hear from God. Turn in your Bible. Don't you get it? I need to hear from God. <laughs> False prophets continue to suggest that God's word's not sufficient. That the Holy Spirit isn't powerful enough to change a person's life. Is the Bible truly enough to reveal God, to reveal man's condition, to reveal the solution to man's problems? Verse 36, and the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more. For every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more. In what sense? 
The false prophets, the false priests say that they have a word from God, but they don't have a word from God. Or he modifies it. They do have a word. And then they twist it. And then they pervert it. And then they distort it. And then they twist it. People would do that? They would misrepresent the Bible? They would misrepresent the gospel? Here's the idea. Our opinions and our ideas and our thoughts were never meant to distort God's word or to confuse God's instructions. Let me be clear about that. Your thoughts, your ideas, your words, my thoughts, my ideas, my words were never meant to distort, pervert, or confuse the word of God. And thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you? And what has the Lord spoken in verse 37? The false prophets, the false priests, the false politicians. When they opened up their mouth, they distorted, perverted and undermined the word of God. It's like that old joke. How can you tell when a lawyer is lying? His lips are moving. Yeah. How can you tell when the false prophet, the false priests are lying? It's when their lips are moving. And they say, and it's prefaced with these words, thus says the Lord. In verse 38, but since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, and I have not sent to you saying, do not say the oracle of the Lord. Here the oracle of the Lord means the vision of God or the revelation of God. Or the word of God. Verse 39. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers and will cast you out of my presence. Here's the the hard part. It's the consequences. Therefore, behold, I, this is the true and the living God, even I, the true self-existent living God, I'll forget you. And I'll forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers. James probably had this passage in mind when he wrote. Don't be many teachers among you. Knowing that you will incur the stricter judgment. That's his way of saying. You need to be really, really, really careful when you open up your Bible and you open up the word of God and you say that this is what the Bible says and this is what the Bible means. Because if you say something that the Bible isn't really saying and if you're implying a meaning that the Bible isn't really meaning, then you're running a terrible, terrible risk. And in verse 40, it says, and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon them. Look what else what it doesn't say. And I will bring a temporary reproach. I'll bring a probationary reproach. I'll spank their hands, but I'll get over it. I'll bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. What is this everlasting reproach? What is this perpetual shame, which will not be forgotten? It's a judgment. It's a punishment. 
It's the condemnation. It's the separation. Back to verse 39. I, even I, will utterly forget you and utterly forsake you. Well, truly, seriously, God will get over it, right? He doesn't really care that much about a person's condition. He doesn't really care about a person's soul. He doesn't really care about their circumstance. Is that what you read the Bible? Is that the impression that the Bible gives you? Or does the Bible give you an impression that we saw earlier in the chapter? That God has sent a Messiah. The root of David. The shoot, the offspring. The promise of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Judah. The one who would be born of a virgin. The one who would live the perfect life. The one who would die on the cross. The one who would rise from the dead. If all of human history has been orchestrated in such a way. That a Messiah will come. And forgive your sin and heal your broken heart and terrible condition. Why would anyone want to point you in a different direction other than the Lord Jesus? So, there are huge warnings about people who would deny the Word of God. Who would supplant the Word of God. Who would supplement the Word of God with their own foolish ideas, their own foolish opinions, their own foolishness. But we've run out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for Jesus. And Lord, as we gather here and we are about to partake in communion, Lord, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would examine us. Lord, I pray that for every man and every woman, they would ask and answer the question, Lord, what is your word for me? What do you want to tell me? What do you want to say to me about my life and my circumstances, my heart? And Heavenly Father, again, I pray that you would remind each and every person that because of the love of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus, that there is washing and cleansing. There is hope and renewal. That the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to change us from the inside out, to wash us and cleanse us. And Lord, for that person who finds himself or herself far from you, estranged from you, distant from you, when they look inside of their heart, all they see is emptiness and darkness. Lord, I pray that in humility and submission, they would cry out to you and say, Lord, reveal to me my need for me you. My dependence upon you. Lord, give me the strength and the courage to turn from my sin, but also give me the strength and the courage to utterly and completely 
to rely on Jesus, to depend upon him only for life and for love, for forgiveness and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.